Let's pray together. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have, we have prayed for our world and the many challenges this world is facing. And now, as we prepare to read your word, we just pray for ourselves. Not in a selfish way, but we pray for ourselves because as we read your word and as we look into the scriptures together, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will so enlighten us and bless us that the experience of worship this morning will send us out renewed and ready to be witnesses for you throughout the unfolding of this coming week. And Lord, as we pray for ourselves, we're very conscious of the people who are sitting around us. Some we might know very well, others we might not know at all. But we take this opportunity to pray for each other. And we ask, Lord, that you will help us, even as we just quietly pray, to be so sensitive to your leading that our prayers will be relevant to the needs of those around us and that we will be drawn into closer fellowship by your Holy Spirit. Lord, in a few moments, we pray for each other. Lord, bless your word to us and may our lives Declare your glory through Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're going to read the scriptures together as we find them in Luke 24. It's a very well-known passage of scripture. It's the walk to Emmaus. It begins at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what has happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It's a lovely passage of Scripture. It's a very precious story. Just before we start to look at it together, what I want us to do is to put it in the larger context of the unfolding drama of redemption that is the message of Scripture. Think about this account in the wider context. And to help us to do that, we're going to sing some words. I, I, I want you to, to say, stay sitting down and make this very much a prayer. But as we sing together, such love, pure as the whitest snow, just think of this marvelous story within the wider context of the unfolding drama of redemption. As we sit together, we'll sing the worship song, Such Love. I am 
The seven-mile walk to the village of Emmaus took place during the afternoon of the first Easter day. The two disciples were disillusioned, they were dejected, they were disappointed. They left Jerusalem even as rumors of an empty tomb started to circulate amongst the other disciples. Because of the prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled and the promises that Jesus had made, and because they had put such trust in Jesus, nothing made any sense anymore. They had seen Jesus crucified, buried in a tomb, and with him, all their hopes and all their dreams. Who were they? Well, we know that they weren't of the twelve disciples. They were of the wider group of Jesus' followers. We know that one of them was called Cleopas. The other is not mentioned by name within the passage, but it's quite possible it was his wife. It's quite possible that her name was Mary and that she was one of the women mentioned by John in his account that stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. The idea of husband and wife returning home seems very natural. The idea seems to fit very comfortably into the story of two disciples, husband and wife, returning home to Emmaus. <clears throat> there have been various attempts to try and explain this story as just fiction. But these attempts are purely subjective because the Emmaus story bears throughout the stamp of genuineness. And any unprejudiced reader will see that it's taken from actual life. The story has the mark of personal experience written all over it. And it's more than likely that Luke got his information from one of these two disciples. And it's almost certain that it was Cleopas who gave Luke all the detail and the information. And that's why Luke mentions his name. Because he, in doing so, 
is identifying his source. And we're going to walk through these verses together and, as it were, take the walk along the Emmaus Road. And as we look at verse 13, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. The description of their discussion is an interesting one. Just one word tells us a great deal about the nature of the discussion. What are you discussing together? The Greek word is anti-ballo. Anti meaning corresponding to, and ballo meaning to throw. Literally, to throw in turn. The amplified version of the New Testament translates it, throwing back and forth between yourselves. So in other words, it was a strong discussion that they were having with each other. Words and ideas were bouncing back and forth between them. These two disillusioned disciples were trying to make sense of things. And I suspect they were going round and round and round in circles. Their walk was getting slower and slower. They were in a state of such disappointment. Their discussion was getting them nowhere. And perhaps the longer it went on, the louder it became. And so a passerby couldn't help but hear and notice. And at this point, Luke is using a literary device which makes for, for fascinating reading. Because as readers, we are made aware of important facts that were hidden from Cleopas and his wife. Notice the paradox that we can appreciate as Cleopas responds to Jesus in verse 18. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? His response, his, his question, they're laughable when we consider who Cleopas was talking to. He refers to Jesus as a stranger to the events in Jerusalem. You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about these things that have happened there in these last few days. He's, of course, referring to the cross and all the events that surrounded Calvary. And Jesus was right at the center, right at the heart of these things. And Cleopas is saying to him, you must be a visitor, untouched, unaffected, 
unaware, literally on the edge of things. He's suggesting that Jesus was the only one who ever passed through Jerusalem at that time and didn't realize what was happening. The response of Jesus to this is full of grace. He doesn't humiliate them. He goes along with them. And he asks, what things? I want to suggest to you that this must have been a thrilling moment for Jesus because he was about to lead them into the truth and the reality of the resurrection. He was going to lead them into the reality of it all. And in doing so, he embraces with such gentleness their uncertainties and their disappointments. And we notice that their response to Jesus is a very full response because he's given them the space in which they can respond in this way. They respond to his question, what things, in this way. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Notice there's a difference here. Because up to this point, it's been Cleopas who's been doing all the talking. But now, they're so taken aback by this question, what things, that they both in unison respond about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Now that's interesting. What they're doing there is picking up something that had been very strong in the latter part of Jesus' ministry. Because we know from the gospel record that there was a point from which Jesus, in a very definite way, prepared his disciples for the events that would happen in Jerusalem. There's an example of what I'm referring to just a little earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. And we read this at verse 32. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And so, as they're responding to this seeming stranger, they say to him, and it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. An empty tomb, empty words, empty promises, empty hopes. We're looking at Jesus' response to these two disciples. And we've noticed how graciously he gives them the space in which 
to open up and express themselves. But notice, he doesn't just respond graciously, he responds scripturally. How foolish, he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know, there's an element in, in, in the modern church, and I suspect they've been present perhaps throughout the age of the church, who would like to rewrite this story at this point. Because what they would like is something like this. The two dejected disciples walking along the road, and then suddenly Jesus comes running towards them with his arms outstretched and said, it's all right, I'm alive. And everyone would get so very excited. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say to them, look, I'm alive, it's me. He opened the Scriptures. He did something which some people would perhaps consider rather boring. He opened the Scriptures. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Earlier in his ministry, he had said, the Scriptures bear witness to me. Now, what a Bible study that must have been. What a foundation was being laid. They were being led into the experience of the risen Lord and the truth of the resurrection by the truth of Scripture. And I would say to you, be wary of anyone who puts experience before truth. It is experience that leads to all kinds of claims. But when truth is proclaimed, when the gospel is opened, when the scriptures are expounded, this leads into true experience. It is the truth of the Word of God that leads us into experience that honors Christ and enables us to grow in our faith. Jesus didn't just say, look, I'm alive. He took them to the Scriptures and showed to them the truth and the reality of Scripture to each one of them. I suspect they were not far from Jerusalem when this Bible study began. And I suspect that as they began their journey, they wondered how they'd put one foot in front of another. It was seven miles to Emmaus. To them at that time, it seemed more like 70. But now, where had the miles gone? What a journey they'd had. Because they didn't just walk to Emmaus. They walked through Scripture. And they met Jesus at every step of the way. And so the afternoon sun started to set in the sky. And the shadows 
grew longer. Jesus and his two companions approached the village of Emmaus. And in more than one sense, they were nearly home. In verse 28, we're told Jesus acted as if he were going further. Now, I have to say, I don't feel particularly comfortable with that as a translation. Because there is no suggestion in the original text that there was any acting out of the part. He began to leave them, and he would have gone if they had not urged him to remain. A better translation would be, Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. There's quite a strong emphasis in this whole account of the ability not to see and then to see. As the story begins, they were kept from recognizing him. Literally, their eyes were held. Then, at what we might describe as almost the turning point in the story, we're told they stood still and their faces were downcast. Now, that doesn't just mean that they were miserable. It means that they were looking at the dust of the ground. They weren't looking in the face of the stranger who'd caught up with them. They were looking down at the dust of the ground. That was their perspective. And then we come to this crucial point. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. I'm not sure who said this, but this is a helpful comment. Once the disciples' eyes were opened to the divine perspective... Jesus became invisible to their physical eyes. They had gained insight that transcended the need for sight. And Jesus, to put it literally, departed invisibly. Luke doesn't tell us what happened to enable them to actually see and realize that it was the risen Christ. That hasn't stopped commentators wondering what it might have been. There are those who have suggested, quite reasonably, that as Jesus reached out for the bread, they would have seen the nail prints in his hands. Others have suggested that as Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it to them, there was a strong reminder of what had happened in the upper room as Jesus had shared the Passover with his disciples. Now, they weren't actually taking part in that, but they may have observed it, or they certainly knew the other disciples well enough to have had a detailed account of what had happened in the upper room. Or was it that they went further back in Jesus' ministry when Jesus took bread and broke it and fed a multitude? Well, in all honesty, we don't know. It could mean one or any one of those three or all three together. But what I do know is this, that the Bible study that they had on the road to Emmaus with Jesus 
prepared them for this moment when their eyes were opened. We also know that when we're told their eyes were opened, it means their eyes were completely opened and they fully comprehended him. They didn't just see him. They saw him in a very deep and profound way. For they realized that he was their risen Lord and Savior. Their eyes were completely opened and they fully, fully comprehended him. I don't think they would have been able to do that just because they were able to recognize him. But they did that because they recognized him and had the benefit of all the scriptures that Jesus had opened for them. Jesus was yet to say to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We're often told that seeing is believing, but in a Christian context, believing is seeing. And before this experience at the meal table, the two disciples had started to see. As Jesus began at Moses and all the prophets and explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, they began to see. The pieces of the jigsaw started to fit together. They started to see the picture forming as they were taken through Scripture. And when they themselves looked back on that experience, you might recall that they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the way? Our hearts, they burned within us. Now hold that thought and just travel a little further into the New Testament. Come to the letter to the Ephesians. There in the first chapter, we find Paul praying for the Christian church. And his prayer is this, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That tells us that there's a seeing, there's an understanding that may well include our physical eyes, but includes a great deal more. And that was the experience of these two disciples in their home in Emmaus. Their eyes were opened and they saw him and they realized the wonder of the resurrection. It's a story that has, at least up to the point where we're going this morning, it's a wonderful conclusion. They got up, they returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told, then the two told what has happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I suggested that as they began their journey, they wondered how they could put one foot in front of another. But now, the thought of going back to Jerusalem was no problem. And with as much speed as they could, they hurried back. And when they got back, 
they found them all together, and they were literally singing from the same hymn sheet. They were acknowledging the same glorious truth. The testimony was coming from different directions. Jesus is alive. So what lessons can we learn for our lives today and for the church of today from the walk to Emmaus? There are, I'm sure, many. Can I highlight very briefly three? We learn of the very real problems that are caused by a limited perspective. Real problems caused by a limited perspective. And that can be a problem for me and you as individual Christian, or it can be a problem for a church, a limited perspective. We look at verse 20, and in verse 20, we're listening to Cleopas, and he says, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Nothing wrong with that. Quite factual. Everything's correct. But sometimes we learn a great deal, not by what is said, but by what isn't said. And we learn a great deal about a limited perspective because of what Cleopas doesn't say. Because the one thing that's missing from his description of those events in Jerusalem was the hand of God. The work of God. It's not there. He didn't see it. His perspective was too narrow. Jesus didn't see it in this way, of course. When he stood before Pilate, John tells us in his, in his gospel that Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me were it not given you from above. Or again, we could go into the, um, into the New Testament a little further. We come to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, we find the church in prayer. And this is what we read in verse 27 as they pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Very factual, very correct, could sit alongside what Cleopas said. But here comes the difference. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They recognized the hand of God. Their perspective took in divine sovereignty. That's an important lesson. Charles Swindle, commenting on that prayer in Acts, says this. This is viewing the world from a divine perspective. They, the church, recognize that the people who thought they were playing such a significant role in history, people like Herod and Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas, were nothing more than pieces of lint on the page of prophecy. You see, if our perspective is wrong, then circumstances start to dominate, control, imprison us, limit us. If our perspective is wrong, then people start standing taller than God. 
If our perspective is wrong, then we are very earthbound and very limited. But when we see and recognize the hand of God at work, when we realize that history is his story and there is an unfolding drama of redemption in front of us, yes, even in our modern world, then our perspective makes our outlook a thrilling one for we see the sovereignty and the might of our God. Then we learn of another problem caused by limited expectations. Here we look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, in that word redeem, they use a great gospel word, but I suspect for them, the word redeem was more political than it was spiritual. They were thinking of a political redemption rather than a spiritual redemption. They were anticipating a Messiah who would, by force of hand, deliver them from the yoke of Rome. It was a very popular view, but it wasn't a scriptural view. With my Bible open in front of me, I cannot come to any other conclusion than that the people of Israel play a very, very significant role in the unfolding drama of redemption. But Jesus came to redeem the world. A little later in this chapter, he will say to them, go into all the world, go to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. There's an important lesson there. Opening the door to the world did not close the door to Israel. Jesus came with a message of redemption for the whole world. And it's sad to see what a limited agenda, whether with regard to his redeeming work or any other aspect of God's purpose, what a limited agenda can do to, as it were, tie the church hand and feet, tie the Christian and limit the Christian in this way. And what the need is, the need is for biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity that enlarges our vision and gives to us expectations, the limits of which are not set by a lost world around us, but by our God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. I get so frustrated when I listen to people supposedly speaking in the name of the church but who seem more influenced by the thoughts of the world around them than by the word of God. We need biblical expectations and we need to stand firm on scripture even more so in a challenging world. 
The third lesson that we can learn is the problem caused by limited conclusions. You see, the facts were there. And we've already noticed two things. As Cleopas is responding to Jesus, he says, and it's the third day since all these things happened. We've also seen how they mentioned the fact that some of the women went to the tomb and they came back and told us it was empty and that they'd seen a vision of angels and he, they said that he was alive. Now what's missing there? On the one hand they're saying the tomb's, uh, it's the third day and on the other hand they're saying the tomb was empty. There's no joined up thinking. Seems to me to be a very modern problem seems to crop up an awful lot these days, no joined-up thinking. And that was precisely the problem. You see, if they joined the fact of the third day and the empty tomb, even if they weren't accepting what the women were saying, surely there was enough for them to remain in Jerusalem and to find out more. And if they'd stayed in Jerusalem, then they would have started to realize that the cross and the burial of Jesus were the fulfillment of all that was promised and not the end of their hopes. They would have realized that the cross was a reason to stay, not a reason to go home. And Jesus addressed this very point when he said to them, on the Emmaus Road, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? You see, what they needed was the full picture. As I suggested earlier, they had pieces of the jigsaw and they had a few that they just couldn't see where they fitted. They needed the full picture. In possession of the full picture, everything changed. And so today, within the church, we must ensure that we have the full picture of what God has done and what he has yet to do in the unfolding drama of redemption. And so we, in the church of today, must avoid these very real dangers. We must be sure that our perspective is Godward, that our expectations are gospel-based, and that our conclusions are biblically sound. And so, we have walked briefly the road to Emmaus. The Emmaus Road is one of a number of roads that are mentioned in relation to the spread of the gospel after the resurrection. We could travel into Acts chapter 9, and we've got there the Damascus Road, where Saul of Tarsus, breathing out threats against the church, had an encounter with the risen Christ or between the Emmaus and the Damascus Road, 
we could go to the road that led down from Jerusalem to Gaza. An Ethiopian official was traveling along that road. He was a man of thoughtful and inquiring mind. He'd obtained a copy of the prophecy of Isaiah, and he was reading from it as he traveled. He was reading from what we know as Isaiah chapter 53, but he didn't understand what he was reading. He needed somebody, like the two on the Emmaus Road, someone to come alongside and start to explain. And to cut a long story short, the Holy Spirit led Philip to come alongside that Ethiopian. And Philip, I think this is thrilling, began at that very scripture, and he opened to him the truth about the gospel of Jesus. And the Ethiopian, as they traveled, and as he understood, came to a point where he saw, and where he believed, and he trusted Jesus as his Savior. And they reached the point on the road where there was sufficient water at the roadside for him to be baptized. And they stopped. And Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water. And the Ethiopian was baptized as a believer and then continued on his way. Why have I mentioned these things? Well, because life is often likened to a journey and a road along which we travel. And I think it's a good bit of imagery. But as I draw to a conclusion, I've got to ask, where do you see yourself on this road of life? I think I can say with a great deal of confidence that the vast majority of us here this morning are walking along the road of life in fellowship with Jesus because we, we know him and we trust him as our saviour. But there may be others here, and you've come because you're inquiring, you're searching, you're wanting to know. And it's my great pleasure to say that even in this modern age, traveling along the road of life today, you can have an encounter with Jesus. The scriptures have been opened. The truth of God's word can be explained. And you can come into a personal knowledge of Jesus. During the course of my life, I suppose I've learned lots of things and come to know many things. But the greatest thing of all is that when I was a teenager, I came to know Jesus. And knowing him is the greatest thing of all. Because life's journey would be such a challenge if I didn't know Jesus. I've met many challenges as a Christian. I've met huge challenges as a Christian. But I've known the Savior. And if you want to come and know him, trust him and walk with him, then you too can know Jesus. Know him in the sense in which the two on the Emmaus Road knew him, because the scriptures had been opened. Know him in the way that Paul came to know him. Know him as the way in which the Ethiopian 
understood that the one he read of in Isaiah 53 was indeed the Savior. There's an opportunity for us to respond. We're going to sing a lovely, lovely worship song together now. And we're going to sing about knowing Jesus.